1: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a great show for you today on a day when COVID-19, the second wave, continues to wall up British Columbia. Another big surge in COVID cases announced yesterday. Nearly 2,000 new cases, a record three-day total. Nine more deaths, hospitalizations up again. Great coverage for you on that, including should there be a travel ban to Vancouver Island? Cases rising on the island, too. Uh, Some of those cases from visitors from the lower mainland, possibly driving some of those new cases on the island. I'll speak to Vancouver Island's chief medical health officer, Dr. Richard Stanwick. He's standing right, but he's standing by here. I'll get to him in just one moment. Lots more on the show here today as well, including at the bottom of this hour. We'll get an update from the BC public inquiry into money laundering. There's been fascinating testimony at this inquiry. The key issue Who knew what, when, when all that dirty money was rolling into B.C. casinos, the duffel bags of cash, the gangster rolls, the $20 bills. What did the people at the top know about it? When did they know it? What did they do about it? We're going to talk about that at the bottom of the hour. We got all that and lots more. But first, we kick it off with the surge in COVID cases in B.C. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, speaking about yesterday's numbers.
2: From Friday to Saturday, uh, we had 654 new cases diagnosed with COVID-19. From Saturday to Sunday, an additional 659 people were diagnosed. And between Sunday and today, 646 new cases.
1: Okay, nearly 2,000 cases in a three-day total. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday encouraging people, do not travel if you can.
2: Now is not the time to travel for recreational or non-essential purposes, whether it's from the lower mainland to the island, whether it's between the interior and the north, or whether it's to and from other provinces in Canada. We need to stay local.
1: Okay, let's talk about the uh, surge here of COVID cases. Now, my guest is Dr. Richard Stanwyck. He is the Chief Medical Health Officer for Island Health. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. Stanwyck, thanks a lot for coming on. glad to be on the show. Can you uh, tell give us an update on how the growth of cases we're seeing on the island right now? Yes,
3: certainly, you know, for compared to what's happening in the Lower Mainland, it, it may seem trivial. But uh, what we have seen is, for us, a rather significant leap in the number of cases. Uh, on average, we were seeing all oh, two to five cases a day. Uh, at, at most, and the the other key feature is that we would have maybe two or uh, three contacts of those individuals. Now, uh, we've jumped to, on averaging, about 20 cases a day, 17 on Friday, 41 through the weekend, and the number of people that they're in contact with has doubled to four to five, so uh, it may not sound like lots, but again, it does allow for much more likely seeing community spread uh, of the virus to other islanders, so uh, we're definitely starting to um, I'll follow in the footsteps of what's been happening in the mainland and I think one of the Contributory factors, as you mentioned, um, was the fact that it wasn't just people coming to the island; that Islanders were traveling. And, and, and again, I want to be, you know, candid. Some of these people were traveling for essential purposes; that it wasn't recreational. They may be going for medical appointments. They may have been doing it for critical jobs, etc. But certainly, a proportion of those individuals brought back, at least sixty-six people, we were able to track back, had travel-associated acquisition of COVID. We had about twenty people coming from the lower mainland um, who. Then then brought the virus with them, gave it to approximately uh, 20 islanders, who then passed it on to uh, another four individuals. So it was a small but significant route of transmission. And and we may have sounded like we were overreacting. But remember, we were having, you know, cases in single digits back then.
1: Okay, we've seen an outbreak in Nanaimo Regional General Hospital. Was, Was that related to travel from the Lower Mainland, that outbreak? We
3: do believe that there is a possibility it's linked to some um, social activities that occurred where some of our staff may have been in proximity to somebody from the Lower Mainland who had COVID. So we can't say it for absolute certainty, but it's a very high probability um, it was a social event where there was somebody from the Lower Mainland.
1: Okay, how are resources bearing up on the island? Are resources being strained at all? Not yet. Uh, What we are seeing is our contact tracers. We are looking very hard and we've learned lots of great lessons from
3: our colleagues uh, in the Lower Mainland from Fraser Health and Vancouver uh, Coastal Health on how to tackle this, whether it's the pod approach that Vancouver Coastal is using, the heads up we got about uh, travelers way back in March and April, we've benefited significantly from not only what they've done right, but when things have gone wrong, they said, please, don't do this. And so we continue to look to them for um, experience in applying it here locally. Our contact tracers are starting to show signs of fatigue. They've been at it for, uh, you know, since since this began way back in February. Uh, in terms of our institutions, we now have two people um, in ICU um, that, have, that are COVID related. So we're starting to see, you know, incursion into our hospitals, something that was not happening for months.
1: Okay, speaking to Dr. Richard Sandwick, he is the Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Island Health. Uh, When you take a look at the case count on Vancouver Island right now, I I noted that you had an interesting uh, order there around uh, recreational vehicle sites. And a friend of mine told me the other day, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people at this time of year, if they've got RVs, They'd be heading to the United States, maybe going to Arizona, Uh, maybe. But, of course, with the border closed, maybe more RVing, recreational vehicle people in B.C. moving around. Was that your concern there around RV sites?
3: Yes. Well, what we do know is that there are certainly uh, expectations around hotels and Airbnbs. Um, but yeah, And given that these people were likely going to be coming for the winter um, rather than just passing through um, and, and also recognizing that only the province can do the order to, to restrict travel, what we wanted yeah. to do is work with operators to make sure that um, should there be an event, um, that one, we would have critical information so our contact tracers could hit the ground running. They would have all the critical information for the individuals, um, where these people may have been previously, and so that we could also work with the, the camp or a recreational vehicle uh, operator to institute those measures that would ensure that no further spread within uh, the campground or RV park so again it was being proactive and again hats off to tourism to wanting to make it safe for people who are coming here but also people who live here so it was a cooperative effort right from the very beginning and all this is really to do is to make sure that should uh, COVID occur in one of these sites we should be able to be on top of it.
1: Okay, speaking of travel, let me play this for you, Dr. Stanwyck. Here is the mayor of Ucluwlet, Nako Noel, talking about travel.
3: Look, if you're from the mainland,
1: mainland, you need to stay in the mainland, not because we are being self-righteous here. We're just saying, look, you are deemed in the red zone, and you need to follow it. Okay, is, should you think there should be a travel ban for the island?
3: Well, again, what we have done is is point out the numbers for Dr. Henry. I I always recognize who has the authority to make these decisions, and and this is exclusively a a provincial decision. But I can tell you that I have raised this issue about looking at what the Maritimes have been able to accomplish by um, creating, a, a, you know, I wouldn't say an impediment to travel, but one where uh, people who do choose to come um, are expected to spend a 14-day isolation period. And I can tell you some of the people who did visit the Maritimes for legitimate reasons, um, there was no exception you spent 14 days in isolation people watched you and their numbers do speak for themselves so when we're fighting covid i think we have to look at every option and that's why i think the the team of people that support dr henry her with a whole variety of opportunities that might work just to reduce the spread of covid and that was one of them oh
1: okay that's very interesting are are you suggesting that perhaps the the province should consider a a 14-day quarantine for people who come to the island from off the island
3: well, I know that Dr. Henry speaks to her provincial counterparts, and I, I would say that you'd best pose that question to her, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's certainly something that would be entertained by, uh, I think, the, the team that's looking at how do we further control COVID. The question is, is it too late? Um, you know, do we just need to hunker down? And, and I think this is what we're asking, That and, and certainly Dr. Henry has been saying to folks, you know, please really think about your social yeah. interactions that, you know, we were able to bring uh, a lot of COVID under control back in March and April with those basic fundamental mental things like hand washing, staying home if you're sick, the the physical distancing, you know, it's some of the back to basics or not, you know, maybe we're just getting a little tired and not being as rigorous. And so part of it is making sure the basic measures, which were so successful for so long, um, continue, because this is really a marathon. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I think we can almost say the finish line is in sight with the emergence of the vaccines so, yes. showing so much promise. And we're going to fall short, you know, just a couple of months before the, the, we, we can actually start having a real intervention.
1: Okay, last question for you. You've got a lot of people listening to you right now in Metro Vancouver and elsewhere in the lower mainland. Would, would your message to them from Vancouver Island be to, to stay away?
3: Well, what my advice is, please, as Dr. Henry said, stay home. Take advantage of all the wonderful local activities that you have. uh, That, you know, Vancouver is a phenomenal city. The island's got all sorts of attractions. People come from all over the world. Let's support our local communities, our local businesses, um, and and stay safe. Uh, You know, we're all in this together. And I think BC, as a population, we need to be together to beat this. And and part of it is supporting and trying to normalize things as much as possible, but within our restricted
1: social uh, bubbles thanks for coming on this morning
3: well thanks for your interest
1: all right welcome back to the show let's get an update on what's happening at the public inquiry into money laundering in british columbia the cullen commission uh, called to investigate money money laundering in the province my guest is sam cooper the very fine national investigative reporter for global news very pleased to welcome him back to the show hi sam uh good thanks mike Thanks a lot for coming on. So the the testimony at this inquiry has been really interesting so far and one of the things that I want to know and I think probably a lot of the listeners want to know too is who knew what when, like especially the people in charge at the very top, what did they know about this stuff when all that dirty money was rolling into those casinos, the duffel bags, of cash, the gangster rolls, of $20 bills, who knew what when at the top? Are we finding out about that at this inquiry so far?
4: We are absolutely, and that's the ultimate question, really, in investigative journalism, because when, when you have the power to enact laws that are supposed to make uh, casinos safe or, or at least limit crime uh, in, in an industry that, that is known to sometimes brush up against crime, you're yeah. supposed to, when you get that information, act on it. And what we have heard so far is that the warnings went right to the top of uh, the RCMP, BC's government. BC Lottery Corp and the BC Gaming branch and really we've had absolutely some bombshell testimony fascinating you know stories of meetings between Often it's, you know, former police officers that are now in powerful positions in government or, or have been looking into what's happening in casinos. Let's talk about the first real bombshell. This was Fred sure. Pinnock. As you know, yeah. Mike, he was the former uh, leader of an anti-illegal gaming unit. He says he wanted to take, you know, his resources, get more resources, go into BC government casinos. But he says, strangely, he was blocked. He had to leave his job. He said he was so frustrated uh, with this blocking So he then uh, reached out to Cash Heed, who was then the Solicitor General in 2009. And we heard they had a meeting somewhere in Victoria for coffee or lunch. And according to Mr. Pinnock, uh, sworn and under oath, he says that Mr. Heed told him, uh, Fred, you're right about the comments you've been making in the media. Rich Coleman, who was the gaming minister responsible at the time, knows what's going on and is largely responsible for allowing organized crime to launder money in casinos. Now, let's stop a second. That's a huge bombshell allegation. And uh, this is coming from Mr. Pinnock's memory. He got raked over the coals a bit by the commission lawyers saying, look, you didn't record this. You don't have a tape. This is your memory. And he said, yes, that's right. But uh, that's what I heard. And uh, essentially he put the ball back in their court and said, why don't don't you hear from Mr. Heed? And it appears we, we might.
1: Okay, I was reading a Cash Heed, who's been a repeat guest on this show in the past, by the way. Cash Heed uh, has asked for a limited participant status at the inquiry in order to cross-examine Mr. Pinnock. Is that correct? Absolutely
4: correct. And uh, wow. Here's, wow. The, here's, here's the bend on that one. Uh, Mike, you know that Mr. Heed has been at the center. of He doesn't shy away from uh, making statements. He's been on some big files. He's the Solicitor General at that time, meaning he has visibility on some incredibly sensitive files in B.C. And Mr. Pinnock, uh, look, he's on the record saying, uh, you know, 2018, there's got to be an inquiry. He believes there's serious corruption. So he secretly tape records conversations between himself and Mr. Heed. And what we heard in the inquiry is Mr. Pinnock says he repeated what he said back in 2009 and more. So really at that point, uh, the committee, Commission lawyers, everyone from my view, seems to start getting a little jumpy, and uh, they they do admit these tapes into evidence, but they're looking at potential redactions. They're looking at, as you said, Mr. Heed wants to have some ability to examine what comes out of those tapes. And Mike, you can only imagine what was said in private between these two men. Uh, for we, we understand that Mr. Heed had no idea he was being taped. So what yeah. could they have discussed? Because according to Mr. Pinnock's testimony, Mr. Heed said in 2009, uh, senior Mounties in BC are essentially in on this; they're puppets for Mr. Coleman. Again, a huge wow. allegation. And we should say that Mr. Coleman says he'll have his day, and uh, he has strongly rejected any allegations of turning a blind eye. Previously.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, you and I have both interviewed Coleman in the past, and yeah, he has said that uh, he did nothing wrong here. Uh, speaking to Sam Cooper, the investigative reporter for Global News is like the the, the primary reporter has broken a lot of the, these uh, stories on money laundering in British Columbia. Let's talk a little bit, Sam, about... Larry Vandergraaf, who is a former executive director of the BC Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch, and another guy who is making some bombshell allegations here uh, in testimony at this inquiry. Have a listen to this here. Here he is talking about uh, Rich Coleman, the former Solicitor General.
5: He says, I know lots of people with $10,000 in their pocket. I said, if it's in $20 bills with elastic bands on both ends, you better check your friends out. (laughs)
1: Okay, who is this guy, uh, Van der and what is the point there he's making here about who knew what when?
4: Yeah, the, that's exactly it. Who knew what when? So, yeah. Van de Graaff, another former police officer, another officer that knows very well, as he says, what drug cash looked like. And the narrative he spoke about at length was uh, his, uh, the, the, the regulators, the investigators under him became very concerned in 2008 just with the ramp up of these $20 bills in uh, elastic bands, bricks of 10000 uh, coming in in the duffel bags. It scaled up and up and up up so he he says that he and his uh, his staff were reaching out to anyone that would listen and saying look we have to put a hard limit on the amount of 20s that come into any con- any casino in a 24 hour period because uh I don't he said I don't have to prove it through a police case that this is money laundering it's coming through the hands of loan sharks through these VIPs that no one really knows who they are. And uh, this looks like, smells like, and uh, talks like drug cash. So we've got to stop it. Right. Now let's fast forward to that meeting he says he had in 2010 with Mr. Coleman. He says that uh, they, they just, he said exactly that. These, uh, these $20 bills, we know, I'm telling you, Mr. Coleman, it's drug cash. We have to do something. We heard that Mr. Van der Graaff remembered. Coleman's deputy said, quote rich we've got to do something with this end quote but nothing happened that was mr vandergraff's testimony they uh you know, the Lottery Corporation did these anti-money laundering studies. They studied we can have these special non-cash accounts, but the cash just kept coming in. We know the history and we know the story. That's what we're hearing from people like uh, Mr. Van de Graaff, a lot of frontline investigators testifying the same thing. Uh, rules were bent for these loan sharks and VIPs bringing in duffel bags of cash. And uh-huh. it was all about the money. Again, as uh, Mr. Pinnock says, he heard from Mr. Heed.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Let's play a couple more clips here of some of the testimonies, Sam, from Larry VanderGraff, this former very senior gaming policy official uh, in BC. Here he is talking about how the need for a ministerial directive here for some action to be taken on this, and it didn't happen.
5: Money laundering was on the move, and we needed immediate action. That's why I was strongly suggesting limiting the $20 bills in a 20, 24-hour period.
1: Okay, he was calling for action to be taken. Didn't happen. Uh, Also commented on who should put a stop to this money laundering. I think we got that.
5: Everybody who say the police, the police, the police. I'm saying regulation, regulation, regulation. Okay,
1: so he was saying, I don't know, was there like a jurisdictional dispute going on behind the scenes about... Who who should be responsible for for shutting this down? Is that what he's referring to there, Sam?
4: Well, the, that that's the evidence we're hearing. That uh, essentially what he was saying was that anyone in a position of power knew what was going on. Uh, from the way he put it, really the rationalization that his uh, staff always heard was, "Well, you have to prove it's proceeds of crime before you could bar it." He says uh-huh. uh, he, his argument was, "No, we're here, the regulator, to monitor the integrity of gaming if." We 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 have video of a known loan shark passing a duffel bag to a a known VIP with many suspicious transactions. We can act and we can bar that cash. However, uh, uh, he says no one acted on that. Again, it was all about the money. And uh, finally, uh, we heard in testimony that he believes himself and his deputy eventually in late 2014 We're fired after raising these sort of anti-money laundering measures so many times that we're not acted upon.
1: Incredible. I I guess at the bottom line on this is the suggestion that the people at the very top uh, maybe effectively turned a blind eye to this because the government has taken a big cut of this cash they must have been raking in profits at the bc lottery corporation from all this dirty money coming into casinos and maybe that's why they didn't want to do anything about it because so much money was coming into government
4: well absolutely and uh, mike you can probably recall we've had conversations you know when when these stories were being broken and there was a lot of pushback uh, oh it was People saying, you're saying it's all about the money. You have no proof. Look, in the inquiry, we've heard of a number of emails where we have BC Lottery Corp directors, uh, middle-level managers directing casinos to allow suspicious transactions to occur. Essentially, we've had admissions that, yes, in this case, we let this uh, VIP that was taking money from a banned loan shark fund his account with this money laundering rule breaking transaction we let it occur it's it's no secret anymore that evidence is on the record mike and uh for for, from my point of view it's it's really a question now about how high up does the the sort of visibility on that law breaking go because make no mistake laws were broken
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, it seems to be going pretty high up. That's for sure. And what we've heard so far. Okay. Sam, last question for you. Where does, where does this go from here now? This is uh, an inquiry that's, that's well underway, uh, happening virtually online. Where does this go now? What sort of, what are the sort of the key witnesses that you're, that are on your radar that you want to hear from here in the days ahead?
4: Well, we'll, well, as we've talked about, it looks like we'll hear from Mr. Pinnick again, possibly about these, you know, potentially explosive secret tapes between himself and Mr. Heed. Uh, that's on my radar for sure we're in a little bit of a pause this week where we're talking to uh, you know some officials in Ottawa with FinTrack the law society we'll talk about you know we'll hear about systemic problems but look you and I and I believe all the public wants that direct testimony from people that were on the front lines so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the lawyers that I understand were involved in suspicious transactions from china into richmond british columbia into casinos back to china i'm looking forward to hearing possibly from some real estate developers some realtors mm. uh also uh looking forward to hear more from uh more from government officials and uh look we mr coleman says he wants to be there this spring yeah. i think we also need to hear from casino staff we've heard like unidentified staff that pushed back uh, on on money laundering rules. And uh, there's some powerful people making a lot of money. And uh, I expect to hear from them at some point.
1: Okay, we continue to follow it very closely. Sam, you've done tremendous work on this file. Thank you for coming on today.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the city of Vancouver's climate emergency action plan now. Now, remember that the city declared a climate emergency back in January, not the first big city to do that. Lots of cities have declared a climate emergency. Now the city's action plan is out. It is a controversial one too, nearly 400 pages long. The plan outlines an ambitious agenda to lower the city's carbon emissions, including plans to get people out of their cars, get them walking or taking a bus or taking a public transit or riding a bicycle instead how do you do that well you whack people in the wallet is one way mobility pricing parking fees carbon taxes a lot of these uh, fees and charges outlined in this plan probably the most controversial one that's gotten the most attention that congestion fee that the city could potentially charge people to travel into downtown vancouver let's talk to Councillor pete fry about it now he represents the green party down at vancouver city hall Councillor, thanks for coming on Morning, Mike. Okay, this is up in front of council again this afternoon, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Okay, are you guys going to vote on this plan today? Is that the plan?
5: Uh, I, I think so, yeah. We've heard from a number of speakers, and I think we still have a few speakers to hear from today, uh, but I think we should get to a vote.
1: Okay, where do you stand on this, especially the mobility pricing?
5: Yeah, I, I support this uh, this plan. I think it, the, the challenge is it's a bit of a misnomer when we call it an action plan, because, you know, in effect, there's... Nothing in this plan will change uh, the way things operate in the city of Vancouver overnight, and in particular, the mobility pricing. What's being really proposed in this in this staff report is to do additional work. So, what we as council would be doing is saying, "Yeah, okay, we're okay with this general direction. Now, go do the rest of the work." And that work would include looking at issues around equity and employment. How do we do this without killing the downtown? How do we make sure it's done fairly and efficiently? Uh, What are the kind of considerations around what's the technology that would do this? Uh, Would it be for peak hours only? Would it be uh, staggered impacts for different populations and depending on where you live? Uh, So there's there's a, a lot of consideration and work that would go into evolving this. And that's what we're actually directing staff to do.
1: Okay, there's so many questions out there about about this idea, like, you know, if you put some sort of a toll around the central core of Vancouver, so many people ask, them, like, how much would the toll be? How would you collect the tolls? When would it kick in? Where would the money go? I mean, none of that is outlined in this plan, right?
5: That's correct, yeah. So that that's that's where we're giving direction to staff to go do that work.
1: Okay, you wrote an interesting op-ed in the Vancouver Sun in this issue saying, like, if if you if, if we're going to bring in a toll that would discourage people from driving into the downtown core, you think that that might be, what, a, a regressive move, would hurt the downtown economy? What are your thoughts there? Uh,
5: no, I, I think the point, and it, and it got a bit mischaracterized in the headline that the Sun gave it, but the point is, is if we're going to toll... Uh, if we're going to do congestion pricing, if we're going to do that, it has to be done thoughtfully so that we're not killing our economy, obviously, at the same time. So we want these to be net benefits for, for the ratepayers of Vancouver and ensure that we're doing, you know... Okay, how
1: do you do that? that? Thrive. How do you bring well, in a toll that doesn't guess. hurt the economy?
5: Well, I mean, we know that a toll could actually generate a significant amount of revenue. One of the things that, that doesn't get articulated in this plan, but one of the big considerations is that the, the nature of transportation is changing. So we know with the increasing amount of car share with the, you know the inevitability of autonomous vehicles, a lot of the stuff that we count on in the city of vancouver i e parking revenues parking revenues in Vancouver make about seventy five million dollars uh, in this upcoming budget. We saw how it was really impacted negatively by by um, covid nineteen and so we can anticipate that that those that kind of fra- fragile revenue source for the city of Vancouver. could be in jeopardy in the future if we start seeing widespread use of autonomous vehicles, which arguably the the whole model that futurists are talking about and future urban planners are saying, within 10 years, we can be seeing a system where autonomous vehicles will basically pick you up, drop you off where you want to go, drive around the the downtown core, picking people up, dropping them off, and then when they need to recharge, they'll go to where the parking is free. They won't park downtown at all. They'll go park in a suburb where they can have a charging station and they don't have to pay for the premium parking. So I, I think we that- need to sort of recalibrate around what the future transportation is going to look like in the city of Vancouver, not just because of right. transportation pricing, but just the changing in the sharing economy, uh, the future. We, we know that the, the younger generation aren't going in for cars the same way the older generation did. Right. We have lots of folks who just don't get driver's licenses at all.
1: Okay, I think this whole concept of mobility pricing in Vancouver is going to be an extremely difficult sell on the public, not only because... Uh, where so many people are struggling during this pandemic right now and who knows what the recovery is going to look like but there are so many people that just simply don't have the option to get on a bus or, or ride a bike to, to get to the, where they got to go uh, they've got to commute they need to use their car some people have got to work or get behind the wheel and drive because of their job requirements so it just be not fair to just wallop people with, with some sort of mobility pricing fee so I, I just think it's just insane some of these ideas no, that I, are being and discussed. And I
5: agree with you and that's why that a we're not this this proposal suggests that mobility pricing won't happen until at least 2025, and that we're sending staff away to do work on the equity piece. So right now, San Francisco is doing this exact same exercise. They're a little bit farther ahead of us. They're bringing out mobility pricing for the San Francisco sort of downtown peninsula, the city of San Francisco. Uh, and we'll start seeing some of the lessons that other North American cities who are all exploring mobility pricing, we're not the only North American city who's going down this road. And again, it's 2025 that we're talking about. And we're directing uh, staff to do the work on the equity side so that working folk who need a car to move their tools or whatever it is, or, or they're, they're doing Molly Maid or whatever kind of things. So we're, we're recognizing that folks need to work in the city, that many people will need private vehicles to work in the city. How do we accommodate that? Is
1: right. The respect- well,
5: is there a I, tax rebate that
1: they get yeah I, I don't think it's going to be any any more popular five years from now than it would be right now but you know i was looking at a comment from kennedy stewart the, the vancouver mayor who said quote as it turns out the city of vancouver does not even have the legal authority to put something like this in place this is what kennedy stewart said the other day and i'm like why are you guys instructing your staff to go drop draw, draw like a 400 page plan that you don't even have authority to to implement
5: well, again, it's it, it's targeting implementation for 2025 at the at the earliest. So yeah. part of that work would be to figure out how to make it work. What are the log- legal logistics? I mean, it may be that we direct staff to do this work, and they come back and say, you know what, there's no way we are ever going to be able to shift the law to do this. We need to take this to the province, or we need to take it to the region. Uh, but yeah. the the fact remains clear, though, that Vancouver, we're, you know, if, if you take Mexico out of the picture, Vancouver is the third densest city in North America. We, you know, we're not getting any reduction in population anytime soon. We are continuing to grow. We're continuing to see congestion on the streets of Vancouver with more and more cars. You know, years ago, I had a studio at uh, Jervis and Pender when they were doing the, the, the landscape deck replacement or something back in the 90s. And every day at 3 o'clock, the lineups would start, and it would go all the way over to Pender and Jervis for folks who were driving to the, to the North Shore or Squamish or whatever, and uh, all single-occupant vehicles and 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 we were paying for that sort of infrastructure upgrade to accommodate people who were arguably just you know taking the yeah. most convenient route possible by going with a single occupant vehicle. So if we want to change how uh, the the larger equity portion about how Vancouverites are paying for a lot of infrastructure that doesn't necessarily get used to its maximum efficiency, this is going to be a tool in that direction, and at the same time addressing the reality of climate change and the reality that we need to start taking this more seriously. Speaking of Vancouver, come from
1: the City of Vancouver. Uh, speaking of Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry, one of the uh, arguments I often hear for this mobility pricing or congestion fee idea is that, well, they're doing it in other cities like London, for example. And, you know, I'm just not sure it's a fair comparator. When when you take a look at a, a city like London that has uh, a highly evolved uh, tra- rapid transit system of an underground subway that's that's been there for a hundred years you know it's like it doesn't even compare to what we have in vancouver and the options that people would be required to to take for for public transit i mean the public transit options are just not there for a lot of people and i don't think they're going to be there five years from now so i mean would it be fair to start whacking people with fees if they don't have an ability to get on a bus or a or SkyTrain?
5: Yeah, no, it has to go hand-in-hand in hand with investment in, in public transit. I, I, I take your point about the infrastructure in London. I will also add that the London comparison is, is brought up because, because we saw the, the, the economy in London uh, in, improve, actually, with congestion pricing. Hmm. Because when well, suddenly the traffic reduced, it was faster and more efficient to make deliveries and to get around. So it actually improved the economic output. It was you know by several, like 20% or something like that. I think a more apt comparison for the city of Vancouver will likely be San Cisco. So as I mentioned earlier, San Francisco's already well way to implementing congestion pricing. They're doing that work. They're us on it. They'll, we'll okay. we'll see it quite soon in San Francisco. And you know, similar population, similar density, similar sort of physical configuration, and similar uh transit infrastructure. As we know the BART system's only about as old as uh, it's a little younger than the Skytrain. Mm. And um and I think that we can see we can learn lessons from them. They have more similar kind of characteristics to our city than, say, okay. Vancouver to London.
1: Counselor, thank you for coming on today. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about more good news here now in the search for a COVID 19 vaccine. The world was still celebrating the news from pharmaceutical giant Pfizer after they announced their vaccine was more than 90% effective in trials. Just fantastic news. Some challenges with the virus though, including you have to be it has to be stored in deep, deep freeze, minus seventy degrees Celsius, but the world's still super excited about that. Now comes news from pharmaceutical company Moderna. Their COVID nineteen vaccine testing at ninety-four point five percent effective. And not only that, it can be stored at much warmer temperatures. You can keep it in the fridge. This is fantastic, the news that we continue to hear about the breakthroughs for a COVID-19 vaccine. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's provincial health officer reacting to the Moderna vaccine yesterday.
2: The Moderna vaccine also requires freezer temperatures, which is a little easier. We do have some, quite a few of those freezers, minus 20, um, and can be delivered in slightly different ways. So we are working on all of those details. And once we have um, the protocol about how it's going to work, And much of that will depend on the vaccine being licensed for use in Canada and for whom it works best. And we don't yet have those details.
1: Okay, super exciting news here. Now, what a great guest I've got for you, Derek Rossi. He is a Canadian stem cell biologist and researcher. He co-founded Moderna, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Rossi, thanks for coming on.
6: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Good morning, Vancouver.
1: Good morning to you. This is super exciting about uh, Moderna, the company that you, you helped found here. Can you tell me a little bit of background of the, on that and how you ended up founding Moderna back in, it was back in 2010, right?
6: That's right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a long science story, but I'll try to keep it super high level. <laughs> okay. So we were, we were working on a project in my lab. I had a, a lab at uh, uh, Harvard Medical School. And we were working on a a project uh, in relation to stem cell biology, not at all RNA biology. But we, you know, sort of developed the sort of modified mRNA technology, which eventually went into Moderna and also uh, the Pfizer BioNT uh, uh, work as well. We developed the technology as kind of a workaround, uh, to achieve a goal that we were trying to get at, as I say, in the context of stem cell biology. So it was really just a technical sort of thing that we developed to answer another question. However, once the technology was developed, it was very clear what the, you know, the potential for it to, you know, impact, you know, uh, uh, a potentially patient uh, life. So uh, we had to we had done all our experiments originally in the in the setting of cells in a dish uh and we published a study in in 2010 which is a we got a lot of sort of uh certainly attention from the scientific press but also the lay press as well but uh, we hadn't yet sort of demonstrated that we could sort of take this technology into you know in vivo into animals to get it to work so in the summer of 2010 that's what my team and i did and we showed that Actually, even with very little sort of in vivo you know in it, it turned out to be in mice uh, delivery right. experience, we could get this technology to work very robustly. It worked on the very first time we put it into mice, uh, which you know as a you know when when something works that robustly you know it's it's not going to be right. uh, too long till you can sort of tweak it a little bit to get it ready for uh, for human use so i founded the company in in 2010 with this idea of uh taking this technology forward and uh it's been almost exactly uh, 10 years uh, uh since the founding and you know it, it turned out that it required a pandemic yeah. to you know move it you know this quick uh this near to regulatory approval um, you know, the company itself has, you know, 20 different, we call it modified RNA, 20 different modified RNAs in in various stages of clinical development. But this latest one for COVID really, you know, the project began in January and, you know, 42 days later, there was a, a sample, a clinical sample ready to go into patients. And here we are, you know, 10 months later and, uh, it's on the verge of being uh, approved for uh, certainly emergency use use authorization is probably going to come within a couple of weeks and then a full regulatory approval probably in january
1: it's really super exciting this news when you hear that efficacy rate of 94.5 percent effective what what does that mean to you
6: oh well that's i mean that's fantastic news that 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 just tells you that the you know that the part of the, uh, the coronavirus that was used for the immunization, so-called spike protein, a protein on the outer surface of the virus, it just says that that's the right protein to use for the immunization because the immune system can mount an effective uh, response against it that prevents the virus from infecting human cells. And this was kind of known from studies of earlier versions of sars COVID-like, excuse me, SARS-COVID-like viruses. So that didn't actually even need to be discovered in the context of this study because, you know, related viruses had already shown, and we knew about the biology of them, that if you target this protein, there's a good chance that you can, you know, block its uh, ability to infect cells by the production of so-called neutralizing antibodies. And indeed, when, you know, the, the experiments were first done, and you know the first experiments are done in in mice and and in primates uh were done earlier this year at Moderna for example and published it could show that you know those studies showed that you could protect mice and importantly primates so if you immunize the primates uh, uh with the uh with the vaccine and then you know a couple of weeks later literally squirted you know SARS-CoV-2 a virus into their nose and into their lungs, you could actually protect them. So it was, it was pretty clear that it was going to be protective for humans as well. Of course, you still need to do the study to, to show it. But I, I wasn't terribly surprised to see the high efficacy rate of, of of the virus, as I said, based on you know the biology of this type of virus and the, and the preclinical studies that had already been demonstrated.
1: Of course, it's, it's that- nice to see, though. It's got the whole world excited and talking about it. My guest is Derek Rossi. He's a Canadian stem cell biologist, the co-founder of the Moderna Pharmaceutical Company that just announced this uh, new corona, uh, this new coronavirus vaccine. When, when you hear about that type of effectiveness rate, um, how how confident are you that you know, you know could this could a vaccine like this end the pandemic, like bring an end to it next year?
6: Yeah, it's going to take quite a, quite a while to, to roll out, you know, for the it's a global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot of a lot of people need to uh, be vaccinated. But um, the the protection rate is, you know, certainly in these clinical trials. And it's by the way, it's interim analysis. It's early analysis. You yeah. know, the Moderna study, they had Sort of said they would do an interim analysis as soon as 53, um, sorry, 51 patients got infected. As it turns out, because the pandemic is raging so fiercely here in America, uh, they got to 95 people infected, and the study was totally blinded. And then they sort of unblinded these 95 people to to find out that you know 90 of them had been on the placebo, in other right. words, they weren't protected, and only five people that had been uh, immunized with the vaccine. Um, uh, contracted the illness and importantly of those five or actually of all the people in the study um, out of those 95 people 11 people got very seriously ill with COVID-19 disease and none of those were in the uh, in the vaccine group they were all in the the placebo group yeah that that's
1: it that's a a really interesting sort of uh, part of these these studies that have come out does that mean that this vaccine could potentially uh prevent people from not only contracting the disease, but if they do get it, they would they would not get seriously seriously sick, and perhaps prevent death.
6: Well, that's the that's the implication of that data yeah. that I just just mentioned to you. Right. Of course, there's you know there's thirty thousand people in the Moderna trial, and there's thirty thousand people in the the Pfizer uh, BioNTech trial. So, you know, and certainly, you know, as I said, with the uh, pandemic raging the way it is you know, many dozens, if not hundreds more people in the placebo arm are going to, you know, get infected and probably some in the vaccine arm as well. And so as those numbers increase in terms of who got seriously Ill or not, we'll have greater confidence, uh, you know, of that. Right. But but so far, zero at 11 is a, is a good place to start.
1: It's very exciting news. Dr. Rossi, congratulations and uh, thanks for coming on today to talk about this.
6: Oh, my pleasure. It was fun.